0: Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 1, working our way through this great book. Uh, this last week, uh, Jerry and Mary Martin stopped by the office, and and they said the craziest thing. They said, you know, we were on our way to town, and we, we, we went past the church, and your car wasn't here, and so we thought maybe you'd be at Costco having lunch, And I, and I said... What in the world's wrong with you? Why would I do something like that? My name's Dave, and I'm a Costcoaholic. <laughs> and I can change if I have to. I guess so. I guess. <laughs> I got hooked on those $1.50 hot dogs early. I mean, we were shopping at Costco in the first year or two of its existence. The second store in the chain was in Tukwila, right where we lived, and it was even closer than the one here. And it wasn't long till I was spending $2.80 for lunch and eating samples like a judge on the Food Network. (laughs) I can still remember the chairman of the Deacon Board. It's his fault. Who was all about you know, great value and whatnot, he told me about the great deals at Costco, and we got to get you a membership at Costco, you know. You can get a business membership because you're the pastor of the church, you know. And that was a big deal back then. Now it doesn't matter so much whether you have one kind or another. People might argue with you if you stood up in a group and said, I'm a member of the National Rifle Association. You know, half the crowd would go, boo. Or if you stood up and said, I'm a member of the Sierra Club, half of them would go, boo. But if you said, I'm a member of Costco, everybody goes, you're a smart fella. (laughs) Unfortunately, it's not that way when you say, I'm a member of the body of Christ, a believer in Jesus, the only way to heaven. That's when you really get an opportunity to be booed in some circles. Many people don't like him or us for believing in him. And that attitude began with those who knew Christ personally. As we come to 2 Timothy chapter 1 today, we're going to hear Paul encourage Timothy to be fearless in the face of opposition because there is nothing to be ashamed of. Please follow as I read Second Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. But now it's been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things, Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. Where does the pressure to be ashamed of Christ come from? Well, it comes from the world. It comes from the world. Look at verse 8. Paul is saying to Timothy, he's, he, he's not inferring that Timothy has been ashamed. We know from the tone of everything that's said about Timothy and written to Timothy that there was some natural timidity on his part. He was kind of a reserved person perhaps. He wasn't a natural stand-up-and-take-charge guy. But we're not, we don't have any reason to believe he had denied the Lord or was ashamed of the Lord. But Paul is getting Timothy ready for the time when Paul will be gone and Timothy won't be able to lean on him. And so one of the things he is telling him is, Timothy, you don't ever need to be ashamed of Christ. Listen to these scriptures that describe the world and where the world gets its ideas. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are of God, but the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. In Greek, when the word the is used, it's definitely pointing to a specific identity. The wicked one, not a kind of wicked person, but the wicked one, which is uh, a reference to Satan himself. Ephesians 2 puts it this way, According... We all used to live according to the course or the way the world works. How does the world work? It works according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, just as others. I don't know if you've ever stopped to really think this through, but you need to. If you've ever considered what the scripture says, these are just two examples of verses that clearly tell us somehow Satan infuses his ideas into the people of the world. Now, you know, do I think they're all possessed of demons? No, I don't think that. I don't know how Satan does it entirely. I do think the movie The Passion of the Christ was probably accurate. When it, when it showed Satan constantly whispering in Christ's ear in some way, some form. And if you read the scripture, it says that Satan, after the big temptation, he left him for a while. And so somehow there was ongoing temptation of Christ. Could Christ have been possessed of a demon? Of course not. But there could be ideas put forth. Ideas, ideas. And somehow Satan does that with the world. And obviously in many parts of the world, people are looking for the spirit of nature or the spirit of this or that to come in and help them. And it's not hard to see how these kind of things could happen. But somehow his ideas come into them. And, and those ideas, now understand this, we're not talking about Satan with the horns and a pitchfork and let's sacrifice babies and the occult. That is not where Satan works. Oh, he might be in some of that. I'll tell you where he works. And it's right here. The lust of the flesh. When he went to Eve, she and her husband were the only two people that were ever alive on the earth and not born again, but having no sin in them. They were created without sin. Now, they were not created righteous like already born again but they were created without sin. So here's a lily white human being. And what does Satan do? He appealed to the lust of her flesh. What was her flesh longing for? To be something. To have some experience that she hadn't previously had. He talked to her. He, he caused her to doubt God's word. He, you know, how all these things he gave her. And it says she looked at the food and she says... Mmm, that's going to taste good. And the way the scripture reads is she saw that it was good for food. She looked at it and said it's appealing. That's in us as human beings. That has nothing to do with sin. It has to do with our flesh desiring positive sensual experiences, like tasting some tasty food. And then she, she saw that it was going to make her wise, and Satan said, you'll be just like God. Because goes, I'm going to be something. He appealed to the lusts that are in our flesh. And so how does he do his great work today? He comes along and he whispers in people's ear, wouldn't it be great to try out the sexual relationship before you get married? You know, you really should. Watch watched a TV show the other night and they made fun of a guy who hadn't had very many sexual experiences. Like, how can you possibly get married if you haven't had sex with a lot of people so that you know that sex with this person is the best one? And they absolutely made him feel stupid for having been nearly celibate. That's the satanic idea. And it's common truth in our world. The lust of the flesh. And so Satan appeals to those... Chief among which is pride. Eve wanted to be just like God. And so, Satan pushes on the world, and the world pushes on us. How do they do it? They do it, first of all, with intellectual arguments. They do it with intellectual arguments. They will try to argue against the validity of Christianity. And you need to be prepared, like Paul told Timothy to be prepared, because... There is going to be a new version of this every year. One of the recent versions in the last year or two is this book, The God Delusion, by a famous atheist named Richard Dawkins. He's just the latest one in a long line of atheists. They've all gone on, he hasn't gone on, but all the rest of them have gone on to their reward. And they know which one of us is right now. Okay? The God Delusion. The movie Religulous by Bill Mayer, Mayer, however he pronounces his name, he hates everything religious, I think, including Judaism, and he is a Jewish man. Okay, I mean, his goal, the only religions that he favored in this movie were essentially what we would call Eastern religions, meditative religions. Okay, he, he, he kind of let them slide, but he blasted every other religion in the world. That was his goal with this movie. Um, the Da Vinci Code. Oh, man, the... The Christian community thought the Da Vinci Code was just going to bring down Christianity. And I thought, oh, come on, folks, this is just this year's model. You know? Who's paying any attention to that a couple, two, three years after the fact? Nobody. He's made several other movies since then. Any big splash? No, no big splash. Christianity stopped working? Nope, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This stuff is from the gates of Hades. Now, I don't think he's possessed of a demon. I don't think he thinks he got his information from a demon. But Satan has so infused the world with intellectual ideas against Christianity that people like this are thought to be really, really deep thinkers. And the truth is, they're just God-haters. Christian, you need to know that this will never stop. There will be a new one next year, next year, next year. When I was in Bible college 35 years ago, the big attack was against the, does the Bible have errors or not have errors? And after a few years, everybody said, you know, everybody basically chose sides. And the argument went away. And there's new arguments put in its place, and they're ongoing. We need to be aware of that. Number two, the second way the world comes after us is through social pressure. Social pressure. Uh, Frankly, a lot of people in the world don't think that much. And I'm not being mean or rude. I'm just saying there's not a lot of people who sit around thinking. And so the whole intellectual thing doesn't work on them. They don't care about that. Yeah, whatever. Just a bunch of intellectual baloney, a bunch of academic stuff. But social pressure will work on them. In the day of Jesus, you remember the story where the Pharisees said this, If any of you people confess that Jesus is Christ, we're going to put you out of the synagogue. Now, in that day, that was equivalent of saying, none of us are ever going to talk to you. We're not going to do business with you. We're going to ostracize you completely. It had social and economic uh, ramifications to it. And that was in the day of Jesus itself. I was talking to a friend this week, and uh, I happened to mention a common friend that we have who he works with. And he he said the most interesting thing about this fella. He said the people at work who don't like Christians don't like him. But the people at work that either don't care about Christians or who are Christians think he's a fine fella. (laughs) That's social pressure. If you say what you believe the truth to be, when those discussions come up, if you refuse to go to the excess that they go to in their revelry, and their partying, you will be made fun of. You will not be a liked person. And there's a tremendous pressure there. If you're a teenager who follows Christ openly, you will not get invited to hang out with what the world calls the cool people. It just won't happen. And there's pressure because we all want to be liked We all want everybody to think we're a wonderful fellow, and and Satan uses that. There's a third kind of pressure that Satan uses, and it's the pressure of physical attack. I believe that's what was most getting after Peter when Peter denied the Lord. He's standing there warming his hands by the fire, and he can see the treatment that Jesus is receiving, and he can tell where it's headed. And they look at him and go, you're one of his followers, aren't you? And he is scared to death. Today, the examples of physical attack are numerous. I mean, if if you're not aware that Christians are physically persecuted all around the world, you're reading the wrong periodicals. Because they are. Um, even in our government, are you aware that there's an, um, uh, sort of an ambassadorial kind of position on human rights that includes religious rights? And there, at times, depending on who's in that position and how the government is, our government puts pressure on other countries to stop persecuting Christians. That's going on all the time. I had a friend who used to... He has a different ministry now, similar but different. He used to be sharing God's truth in a country that does not allow, not only does not allow missionaries, it is against the law to proselytize. Now what that means is for me to say to you, you should believe in Christ. You should leave your way of belief and come to my way of belief. That's the fancy word for that in in the secular world is proselytizing. I'm going to make you come over. And there is a majority religion in that country, and so it is against the law to proselytize. If you happen to wake up a Christian, be born a Christian, it's okay to be a Christian, but you cannot proselytize. So my friend and his wife and his kids spent a couple nights in jail because somebody either had it in for him or found out he was proselytized. I don't know what it was. And uh, that's just a minor thing. I mean, that's nothing compared to what goes on all around the world. In the face of this kind of pressure, Paul says, Timothy, do not be ashamed of Christ. Why does he say that? He says, do not be ashamed of the testimony of of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. Some people were ashamed of Paul. Paul's in jail. What kind of a Christian goes to jail? He said, Timothy, don't be ashamed of the Lord. Don't be ashamed of me because I'm in jail because of him. But instead of that, share with me in the sufferings for the gospel. And then he goes on to list, to talk about our salvation. And the thing that I want you to grasp today is this. The reason for courage in the face of the anti-Christian pressure of the world is the greatness of our salvation. The greatness of our salvation. And I believe that Paul... Uh, elaborates on what the greatness of our salvation is and the first point is this salvation comes as a call from God look at verse 9 who has saved us and called us with a holy calling the word call the call of God is the idea that God God brings us into his family he brings us into his service it's used both of salvation and of service and and so I think there's a, a kind of a combining here. But he says, God has saved us, God has called us. From time to time in my work with the sheriff's office, the sheriff will call me and ask me to do something. Okay. I have his cell phone number. And usually in a cell phone, when you program in somebody's cell phone, like I have my wife, you know, it says Sue. So when she calls, it says, call from Sue, because I programmed that into my cell phone. I have his phone number and his name in my, in my cell phone, so it should come up, you know, phone call from Bill Elfo, but it doesn't. It comes up, restricted number. Okay? So nobody knows, nobody, nobody who's not supposed to know can know his cell phone number. His phone number is the only one that comes up that way on my cell phone. <laughs> Okay? I, I think maybe if somebody else called, would call me from, at the office, it might come up that way as well. But he's the only one on any regular basis that calls, and that's what it says. So when it says that on my cell phone, I know the sheriff is calling. Now, here's the deal with the sheriff. He's a very busy guy. He loves what I do there. He's very, he very much supports it. That's why he calls. And he says, hey, I'd like you to know this. I'd like you to know that. Here's something that just happened. When my cell phone says restricted number, I answer it because it's important. That's one of the reasons I keep my cell phone with me all the time, except when I'm preaching. That's the only time I don't have it with me. Because sure enough, once in a while when I lay it down and walk away, somebody like him will call. Now, could I suggest something to you here? The God of the universe called you. He's way more important than the sheriff. Way more important. The God of the universe looked down on this sad earth and said, Hey Dave, I want you! Hey Sue, hey Glenn! The God of the universe. How cool is that? A lot of people think it's cool to be connected to somebody important. We're connected to the God of the universe. What's to be ashamed? What's to be ashamed of there? Nothing. Look at this. As many as received him, as many as received Christ as their Savior, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. I can call the sheriff and he'll answer the phone. (laughs) I have that right because of my position but I can call God. <laughs> I can call the God of the universe and say, will you save me? And he said, yes, I will. So what's to be ashamed of? What is to be ashamed of? What a privilege is ours. Did you know that Christianity is the only religion in which we, have a, we can have, if we're willing to believe in Christ as our Savior, we can have a Father God who welcomes us into His family. There's no other religion in the world where you get to have a personal relationship with the Creator of the universe, even by what they say is written. Nothing. So what's to be ashamed of? Frankly, We ought to be out there going, my religion is better than your religion. It is. Now we shouldn't be arrogant. That's a sin too. But we should be thankful and we should be worshipful and and we shouldn't be ashamed. I told my science school class a little bit about this, but I was in a situation this week with somebody I'd never met before and spiritual things came up. And i got to tell you, when I'm out taking care of my personal business, that's all I care about. But I've been praying for opportunities to witness. And so here I am being served by this person for about a half an hour, and they bring up this thing, and I think, "Mm, do I go there or not go there? (laughs) And I said, this is God's answer to my prayer. So we went there, and we talked about spiritual things. And you know what? i got nothing to be ashamed of. This person has a philosophy of life, which is, I would call it, broadly spiritual, somewhat religious, but not Christian. Do you know what? I know the God of the universe. He, 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 he thought enough to reach down and call me to himself, and that doesn't mean I'm something great, but that means what I have is a great thing. And it's not only great because he called, but it's great because it's a gift, it's a gift from God. Look at verse 9 again. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works. I did not earn what I have, but I received it according to His purpose and grace. The word grace means a gift. I, in, my, in my study this week, I found the most ex- wonderful summary on this doctrine. It's from J. Vernon McGee. And he says this, Man cannot be saved by perfect obedience because he is incapable of rendering it. And then he, he goes on, And he cannot be saved by imperfect obedience because God will not accept it. There is only one solution to the dilemma, and that is the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Boy, that is such a powerful little summary. Man cannot be saved by obedience, perfect obedience, because he cannot give it. I have a friend who was talking to one of their coworkers, and recently, and, and the coworker was very strong in opposing certain churches in our community. That, that person's never been here. <laughs> he would really not like our church because in some of those churches, they actually say, "You're a sinner who needs God to save them. Now, he said, I know I do sins, but I'm not a sinner. That would be like a really bad person. I'm just a little bad. And you see, what he thinks is, he's going to get saved through his imperfect obedience. No. No. God will not receive your imperfect obedience. That's what makes Christianity so wonderful. I don't have to crawl on my knees up the steps of some humanly contrived temple. I just have to say, oh God, I'm a sinner. Will you please save me? Will will you take the blood of Christ and wash away my sin and put his life within me? And, And when you honestly come to that point of belief in the person and work of Christ, he gives you salvation. What a wonderful thing. Number three. On our list of greatness, the greatness of salvation is this. Salvation enables us to accomplish God's purpose. Look at verse 9. He saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ before time began. But now it's been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Verse 11, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. There are multiple benefits to our salvation, but there is one purpose. And sometimes we confuse the benefit with the purpose. For instance, people will think the purpose of salvation is to keep you from going to hell. And that's not true. That is a benefit of salvation. The purpose of your salvation is for you to bring honor to God. And one of the purposes in that great bringing glory to God is this. God enables us to live a life and to do ministry that brings honor to Him. The reason God forgives our sin and kills the power of our sin nature and infuses us with the life of Christ and sends His Holy Spirit to indwell us is so, we will live a life that honors Him even if it includes persecution. The God of the universe has saved you and I so that we might help him with his work. How cool is that? Some of you work in government offices. And in government offices, I don't know if it's a rule or a practice, they put a picture of the president up. You're helping the president accomplish his agenda. Okay? Obviously, sometimes we're more excited about that than others. We, we used to have a, president of the previous, a picture of the previous president up in our office because we sent off for a certificate that said, congratulations on your 125th anniversary as a church. And they sent us this signed certificate. George, George W. personally signed that, or one of his associates. And they sent us a picture of him. As well. And the person who was a secretary at the time was quite proud of that, put that right up there. But we're not here to serve George Bush or Barack Obama or George Washington for that matter. We get to serve the God of the universe. The God of the universe called and gave you salvation and a spiritual gift so you can help him with his work. What's to be ashamed of? Nothing to be ashamed of. And if that's not enough, salvation brings eternal life. Look at verse 10. But now this salvation has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, I think, helps us to understand this idea of abolishing death. Obviously, we would read that and say, well, wait a minute. People still die. Even Christians, and so he didn't take the experience of death away completely. No, that's right. he did not. What's what First Corinthians 15 says: So when this corruptible, this body that's subject to decay has put on the incorruptible body, and when this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written: "Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your sting? Oh Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When God says he abolished death, what he means is he abolished the mandate of spiritual death. Let me put that in real plain words. When Christ died on the cross, he made it possible that you don't have to go to hell. Now you say, oh wait a minute, weren't people believers and didn't they go to be with God before the cross? Yes they did, but if you study your theology well, you understand that their sins were only covered. The word atonement literally means a covering, and their sins were covered. The book of Hebrews tells us, or excuse me, Romans 3 tells us, until Christ died, then God was able to wipe those sins away. When Christ died, the possibility of not going to hell and going to heaven became a reality. And so he abolished the sting of death. Does death Is death still painful? Yes, it is. I've stood on this platform many times and officiated, as the word goes, at many funerals. Are there still tears? Yes, there are. Is there still pain? Yes, there is. But for those who know Christ and whose loved ones know Christ, The sting is taken out and replaced with the spirit of victory because God says we're going to live forever with him in heaven. A number of contemporary Christian songs have been written. One of them goes, if you could see me now. And it goes on to talk about what the person is experiencing in heaven. And it says something like this, if you could see me now, you would never want me to come back. That's the wonderful hope we have. Salvation brings eternal life. I know in my heart that I'm headed to heaven. So what's to be ashamed of? I don't hope I'm going to go to heaven. I'm not, I'm not You know, rolling the dice every day when I get up or every night when I go to bed or when I get in my car and go on the freeway. I know that I'm going. So what's to be ashamed of? Nothing. Nothing. Letter E Their salvation comes with a guaranteed outcome. Look at verse 12. The Apostle Paul says, this is, this is, I'm suffering because of the cause of Christ. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Why? Because I know, as the old hymn says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed. Unto him against day. that day. That song is taken right from that verse, straight up. The Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed, and I'm not worried, because I am confident in, in my Savior. And the word committed literally means deposited. The Apostle Paul said, I've made a deposit with Jesus Christ, and I'm convinced, I'm certain that that when I get to heaven, that deposit will be there. The deposit was his whole life. When I go to the bank, I expect to get my money out. I can't imagine what those folks went through back in the day who went to the bank expecting to get their money and said, I'm sorry, you're not going to get it. Not now, not tomorrow. The Apostle Paul said, I expect that when I get there, it's all going to be there my whole life. Listen, and why did he expect that? Because of the words of Jesus himself. All that the Father gives me, Jesus said, will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing. Translate that, God gave the apostle Paul to Jesus as part of his body through salvation, and and Jesus says, nothing will be lost but I should raise it up at that last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. What other religion makes such claims, much less delivers? People came to the door one time years ago. My wife was home with the kids, little kids. She knew what religion they were just by the way they were dressed and what their books they were carrying. Does your religion teach that you can know for certain that you're going to heaven when you die? No, nobody can know that. Well, my religion teaches that. So why should I switch from my religion to your religion? Blew them out of the saddle. <laughs> What's to be ashamed of? What's to be ashamed of? Nothing. But there's a reason why the Apostle Paul trusted Christ so much. And it's because he had a trustworthy Savior. Now, I want you to catch something here. Look at verse 12. When the Apostle Paul talks about his confidence in Christ keep him saved, and to get him to heaven for it to When he died, to, that he would wake up in heaven, that whole idea, he says, I know... What's the next word? He didn't say, I know what I have believed. He didn't say, I know the truth out of this book. Now, he could have said that, but he didn't. He said, I know whom. I know who I... I know this person. I know this person who died on the cross for me. And he says, I know him so well that I know when I close my eyes for the last time here, or in his case, when the, when the executioner's sword or whatever it was would come down on him, he says, when that happens, I'm going to open my eyes in heaven. The reason he could say that was because he said, I know him. I know him. Real confidence about this life and the next life comes from knowing God so well that you can trust Him. How do you get to know Jesus? Number one, you get to know Jesus by listening to Him. Honestly, the person I had this discussion with this week, this witnessing discussion about religion, I said, hey, look, here's my challenge. Just read the Bible. I don't need to be there. You just read the Bible with an open mind and an open heart and say, God, show me yourself. And God says the power is there. The power is not here. Anything that God is doing in you this morning or did in you last Sunday when I was speaking is because of that, not me. You want to get to know Jesus? Listen to what he wrote to you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You want to be able to trust God more, read His Word more. Now, you're saying, oh, geez, Dave, you're just telling me to read the Bible and pray and call you in the morning. Yeah, I am, as a matter of fact. You need to read the Word. God has promised that He will reveal Himself to us plainly and it's no no mystery it's not like you got to read it until the letters raise up off the page or something no it's the truth is in there but there's a little more to it than just reading you need to listen and then you need to share experiences with him share experiences with him yesterday wife and i went to the parade went to pioneer days went and shopped around for some plants for our backyard remodel, and several times during the day we looked at each other and we thought the same thing. Okay, That doesn't always happen. But the, when it does, it's because of past shared experience. We've just plain been living life together. You know, uh, Generally, we do things together. Not all the time. I I go and do ministry things, whatever. The question you need to ask yourself today is this. Have you been doing things with Jesus? Well, how do you do that? You do that by reading his word and getting up from it and saying, okay, God, here's a little piece of your truth. I'm going to go out today and live that truth. And and, and you walk along and, and you come to this point, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit goes, there's the point. That's where that truth goes. And you go, okay, I'm going to do it. And you look ahead and you go, oh, I'm going to do it. But it looks like the kids talked about Peter stepping five feet off of a boat onto the top of the ocean. You go, oh, it looks a little scary. But you go, okay, I'm going to do it because I know it's right. And so you take that step. You know what you're doing? You're walking with Jesus. And he's going to make himself known in those godly steps that you make. And at some point, you'll even see a result of one kind or another, and you'll, you'll go, wow, this is the coolest thing. I mean, that's what happened to Peter. He stepped out in faith, and he went walking along. But then he got his eyes off of Jesus, didn't he? And he started looking around at the world, and down he went. And that's the same experience that we have. Either we're walking with Jesus, building a relationship with him, or we're looking at the world, being made fearful for no good reason, And sinking. When you work over and over and over with Jesus, you get to know Him, you get to trust Him, you get to see Him at work in your life. This week, I got emails from two... Uh, from one guy that I would say I've worked with a little bit in ministry, not much, and another guy that I went to Bible college with, but I, the only reason I've reconnected is Facebook and I don't know if he found, I think some mutual, through some mutual friend, he found me, and we exchanged a couple of emails. He emailed me this week, and he said, you know what, and he told about a conversation he and I had in Bible college, and he said, you probably don't remember this, and I thought, you're dead right there, buddy. I remember him. He was in our wedding. He was a great guy, enjoyed his friendship when we had it. He lives on the East Coast, pastoring all these years, but he he gave me a little encouragement for something I said that helped him in his life and that he actually was passing on to somebody else now, many years later. And I just looked at that and said, isn't that cool to walk with God and be able to have that? I mean, right out of the blue, this guy says something nice to me and encouraging to me. And I thought... Man, that's that's why I'm in the ministry, because I can work with God. The God of the universe says, hey, there's something for you to do. And I can walk with him and work with him and get his blessing. And along the way, I get confidence as I look toward eternity. I go, man, I can't wait. But if you're not walking with the Lord, you will be unconfident about this life and the next life. If you're not praying godly prayers on a regular basis so that you see those prayers answered, you won't believe, you won't have a trustworthy Savior. You'll think you you just won't know Him. The value of Christianity means there's no shame in suffering for it. There's no shame. Now, believe me. Believe me when I say it, and you probably can't tell from looking at me, cover the platform here. It's not easy for me to go out there and start those conversations that I know have the potential to be in conflict with somebody. I did not convince this person I talked to this week. She didn't fall down on her knees and say, Oh, God. Please be merciful to me, a sinner. Not even close. But I said the truth. I did my best to be gracious, and so on. You know, um, somebody else in this church told me, they said, you know, I've been reading a book, and the guy says he has determined to witness to every single person he talks to, and he talks about the creative ways this guy witnessed, and and the person in the church said, I'm going to try and do that. And I thought, I should be trying to do that. I know it's hard. I know it's hard not to be ashamed. I know it's hard not to be scared. I really do. But there's nothing to be ashamed of. Our salvation is so great. There's nothing to be ashamed of. If you don't know, this is Michael Phelps. Um, He's pictured there with six medals. I thought he won seven at those last Olympics. But I know with the number that he won at this Olympics, he's won the most as an individual in any Olympics or something like that, or at least the most of all the swimmers, do you suppose when he's in Beijing and he gets all of these medals and whatnot, that he stands there and go, you know, I wish I'd have ate more Twinkies. <laughs> Truth is, he couldn't eat more Twinkies. He eats about 11,000 calories a day. Do you suppose he said, I wish I'd put in less hours in the swimming pool? Do you suppose he said, well, it's nice to win a gold medal, but it's not that big of a deal. No. No. He said, you know, there's a lot of pain that led up to this time, but boy, it sure paid off. Folks, the value of Christianity means there is no shame and suffering for it. Your Christianity is worth more than all the gold medals in the world. And we've really got to get that into our mind. The Apostle Paul summarized it this way. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. That's one of the things that I refer to many times when I'm talking to an unbeliever. I'll say, tell me some other way that works. Tell me how people's lives are being changed. The Apostle Paul said, look, this is it. This is the only thing there is. And so I am not ashamed of it. I am not ashamed of it. (sighs) My wife and I bought a used hot tub off the Craigslist, and we got a really good deal. And I got a bunch of my (laughs) ex-friends to carry it into my backyard. (laughs) And then my wife looked on the Internet to find an operation manual because the owner had lost his, and it's only like three years old. But she also found some disconcerting news. She discovered the manufacturer is out of business, and a bunch of people had told about the terrible customer service they'd had and terrible experience they'd had with their products. And of course, we never saw it run before we bought it. And we still don't have the electricity hooked up, so we still don't know whether it's a good deal or a bad deal. I might end up wishing I'd shopped at Costco. (laughs) Christ is not like that. And a relationship with Christ is not like that. It is a guaranteed thing. It is a do-so thing, not a hope-so thing. I believe in Christ and his transforming salvation every year I'm alive more and more. I'm old enough to know that there isn't anything that comes close to the work Christ does in the human heart. Christ is not a good deal. He's the best deal. And if you'll get to know him, you won't be ashamed and you won't be scared to stand up for him. Heavenly Father, help us. We so don't want conflict, and we so want everybody to like us that we're ashamed sometimes. We put our tail between our legs and we go the other way. Help us. We're like Timothy more than we're like Paul, so help us to not be ashamed. Help us to remember what a great, great thing we have in Christ. And help us to share that great thing as you give us opportunity. I pray in his name, amen.